You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. In this episode, we're going to be talking about dahlias and rhubarb. Two of our completely favourite plants, basically, aren't they, Arthur? I mean, I practically feel I met you over dahlias. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think we're, we're so passionate about them. I think we should talk about rhubarb first, because otherwise it will get drowned mm. out by by our enthusiasm yes. for dahlias. <laughs> so tell me what you think about rhubarb and how you use it. Well, I I love seeing it. It's one of those, it, I call it like a Beatrix Potter plant, really. It, it's very much a Peter Rabbit kitchen vegetable garden mm. staple, isn't it? And I love seeing them. Chatsworth, when I visit there, there's always a lovely avenue of the rhubarb forces that Glenn tenderly looks after. I mean, I dread to think how much they they're worth they're the most gorgeous you know mm. honey beehive like shapes and those lovely terracotta and they've all got little lids on yeah and then of course you know inside there's going to be that gorgeous cordial pink and then that yellow stem when they're being forced and they're just a lo- I mean certainly if I had a big garden I would have a rhubarb bed um and I know at Perch Hill you've got your rhubarb bed near to the chickens yeah so it's lovely to see and I think you you used to interplant the rhubarb with gladioli yeah. Because the thing I worry about is I love to see a, a big bed of rhubarb, but often I think, well, how can I make that bed work in terms of giving me a bit more interest once the big leaves are just there? You know, the, the leaves are nice, but they're just big green leaves. You can't arrange with them unless you're going to eat them. Yeah. So how how do you grow rhubarb at Perch Hill? So the, the thing that's really brilliant about rhubarb is it will thrive in dappled shade. And so mm. rather like mint, actually, it's one of the things that is pretty rare in the edible garden that it, it does put up with, not not deep shade, but it will put up with dappled shade and grow perfectly mm-hmm. well. And of course, the other thing about it is that it's so early, which is why we're talking about it now in spring. And, you know, it's one of those edible plants that we start harvesting here, certainly by the end of March without forcing, but but sometimes even earlier. And with, with the forces, basically what, what you're doing is you're increasing the warmth over the crown and you're excluding the light. And by excluding light, you make the stems tenderer and sweeter, so you don't need to use quite so much sugar when you're cooking them. And do you know, I've grown (laughs) grown rhubarb for a good 20 years before I realised exactly what the top knot was, you know, that the lid that you can take off. Well, it's because Mm. you can pack all around it with muck, with organic matter, you know, farmyard manure, and that, as it decomposes, gives off heat. So you've almost uh, got like this heated electric blanket or hot water bottle. Yeah, an incubator all around it. And then you can lift off the lid and without disturbing the manure around it or the straw insulating it as well, you can pull the stems. So you, you just rip, take the lid off and give a good yank to a stem and then you put the lid back on, you haven't disturbed the manure, so it carries on with the forcing process and you can go back the, the following week and, and pick it again. And that's the thing about, it's just this lovely cut and come again edible, basically, not cut and come again, which is of course pull, not cut. So will you explain how to harvest rhubarb? 
Well, I think I've done it once for you. Um, so <laughs> you do literally tug it and it, it comes away from the, the crown of the plant. You don't pick it with a pair of secateurs, do you? You, you tug it and no. then you get the whole of that leaf as if it's as it's coming away from the body of the, the daddy plant. And that that's, of course, the bit that you're going to eat. So you want that. But is yeah. it true, Sarah, that you can't harvest rhubarb for is it two years they do you have to give them time don't you before you start pulling away at them i think or am i wrong yeah uh, you tend to plant them in the autumn rather than the spring mm. because of course they come into growth early you can plant them in early spring but it, it is good but and then you must leave them for one whole year mm. before you start harvesting because they've got to photosynthesize a lot and then use their energy to put down a good root system and when you plant, you want loads and loads and loads of mark. They're really hungry feeders, actually. They like lots of water and lots of muck in their first season. And then they need mulching every autumn as well because they really, they really are hungry. And it reminds me, I remember writing an article for The Telegraph about 20 years ago and, and going up. I know, maybe it was film, I can't remember. I think it was Gardener's well. World, actually. I remember yeah. you. Did you go to Lincolnshire somewhere? And you in went fact, in this it was, it was West Yorkshire. Place. Yes, it was right. extraordinary, and yeah. I will never forget it. Which is, it were these amazing hangers full of rhubarb being forced in the dark, and mm. they're just crowns lifted from the field. They're not even planted; they're just put on the soil surface, and they're picked. The pickers use candle light yeah. only to harvest. So they're they've got these candles on sticks. It's the most beautiful sight. Mm. And they poke those into the ground and then they pick those plants around. And the reason is that if any light comes in, so if they open the door, it, you lose the tenderness and the sweetness from the four stems. So they really must be done in the dark. And I remember standing there and the, a man saying, be quiet, who was showing us, be quiet, be quiet. Mm. And you could hear this extraordinary noise of the rhubarb literally growing as wow. we were standing there. And this sort of strange creaking noise, almost like a boat sort of <laughs> rocking in the water. And it was literally the rhubarb growing. And they, they flood it with water and they have fed it well in the fields. And then off it grows. But yeah, and then those plants that have been forced mustn't be harvested the following year. Otherwise mm. they'll die. So they have a rest. So they're, they're then rested. And actually... It's very easy to propagate because um, you just take the the sort of more uh, vigorous looking outer sections of a clump. Um, so you dig up the whole clump, take out the outer sections, replant those, and then don't harvest from them for a year and mm. let them settle in. And then you can start the cycle with them again. Now, I'm passionate about rhubarb. And actually, I spend quite a lot of time on the west coast of Scotland. And um, what you find there is you'll come across in the middle of what appears to be nowhere, perhaps by a little burn, you'll come across a big clump of rhubarb. And that, in fact, is a marker of where there would have been a cottage that was cleared by the landowner in the clearances. And the cottage would have completely disappeared and be under the bracken or whatever, but the rhubarb's still there because it's such a persistent plant. And archaeologists apparently use it as a marker for habitation that it is actually, you know, it just persists for such a long time, for not just decades, but centuries, and continues to thrive in the right position. So, yeah, I think it's a, a marvellous thing. And in terms of cooking, I just love heating the oven to as hot as it will go, 
and then putting the rhubarb in with a little bit of soft brown sugar and the juice of one or two oranges and the zest and putting it into that very hot oven for often only 10 minutes. And then I just take it out and just check with the point of a sharp knife that it's tender. And then I'll chop it up a bit more finely often. You know, sometimes I'll leave stems whole, but actually when I'm making this, I'm giving you a recipe for syllabub, so I should have told you that. So that then goes in the bottom of a glass and you get a lovely rhubarby, orangey, delicious compote in the bottom. Oh, and I forgot, I always put star anise, two or three star anise um, in as well. Where do you get star well. anise from? Oh, anywhere, Arthur. It's easy to Supermarket. find. Supermarket. Sounds yeah, very easy posh to, to me. <laughs> it's, it's widely available. <laughs> oh, good. And then in the top, I will whip up um, some double cream and mix it with perhaps some Greek yogurt and a, just a little bit of sweet wine or sherry uh, and a little bit of sugar. And that just forms a lovely fluffy top mm. on top of the compote. And then sometimes I'll toast some almond flakes and just put that over the top too. So that's a, a wonderful th- uh, lunch dish. Perfect for Mother's Day, actually. Absolutely perfect for Mother's Day. I like rhubarb gin. You tried that. <laughs> do you? Yes. No, what do you make it? Do you put no, the rhubarb in? Of course I don't the... make it, I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I do I do fondly remember rhubarb because in the Bold and Brilliant Garden there's a the most gorgeous photo where you've forced the rhubarb and you've taken the force off and then around these yellow stems there's a whole bed of hyacinths, uh jambos yes, and right. woodstock. So I do yeah. although it's a vegetable, I do see it as quite a glamorous plant thanks to thanks to you. We must try and recreate that photo. Somehow. Yeah, it, it was amazing. But again, just like they said in the Yorkshire Triangle, those stems go green within 24 really? hours. It's amazing Gosh. how quick that incredible blanch stem turns oh. uh, turns green. Yeah, and starts photosynthesizing. Mm. Anyway, on to our most precious, precious, loved, dearly uh, beloved plant, the dahlia. Tell me why you love dahlias, Arthur. Well, you you were the first person who I saw growing them and you converted me from seeing them as a very much a, a grotesque, really, to be honest, human creature because I remember being little and my grandma, Sheila, who used to the church flowers, she had a friend called Paddy, Paddy and Margaret, and Paddy was a show grower of dahlias and he had a whole garden devoted to them. And I just remember these huge, great wig-like flowers that he'd got covered over with, you know, old um, brown bags, the kind of bag that you'd buy a loaf of bread in. And he was growing them for the show bench. And even even being little, I remember not liking them because to me, they weren't a flower. They weren't something of nature. They were a completely man-dominated thing. So when I discovered you, not only were you growing dahlias in gorgeous stained glass colours, you were the first person I'd ever seen who'd got a dahlia that resembled what nature intended, a like a starfish-like creature, you know, full of nectar. And I remember, you know, getting the catalogue for the first time and there there were the dahlias with the bees and the butterflies and, you know, just a whole stained glass carpet in the garden. So that's what made me fall in love with dahlias. But it was only until I discovered you that I liked them. A lot of people like them because they've seen them at the country show on the show bench. I'd much prefer dahlias to be a a natural plant than a a human-made plant. It's so true, those those crazy show bench ones. I mean, some of them I love, but some of them mm. just look so plastic, don't they? Sort of almost artificial. And I struggle a little bit with the bicolors for that reason, that they often look a little bit like uh, sort of Mediterranean graveyard flowers mm. that you see sort of in, in little um, vases. Yeah, 
they they do look a little bit uh, plasticky. I mean, we're getting better, really, aren't we? I mean, yeah. I remember when we first started working together, our tastes, we really have, I think our tastes have been a bit transformed, really. In, you know, in I, what way? When I look at the colours in the cattle, you know, because when I first met you, there's no way I'd have gone out into the garden and picked a, a pastel, you know, like Swan Lake collection of dahlias. But now I do I do think yeah. the dahlia is a, an incredible flower for the vase. And sometimes I think you just have to view a dahlia as a vase flower, not a garden flower. Yeah. And even yeah. me, who is, you know, the most snobby person when it comes to what I want in the garden, quite often when you present me with a dahlia, once I've put it in a vase and in an arrangement, I do often say to you, I actually quite like that now. I just wouldn't want it in the yeah. garden. Yeah. Uh, no, well, I mean, I, I just love them. And the reason I love them is that they are perennial and under a, a bucket of mulch over their heads at the end of November before the really hard frost start um, and then cleared away in April, they, they just stay here in the in the ground from one year to the next and they're cut and come again. So they've got the benefits of, of being a perennial in them being low maintenance and the benefits of an annual in that they are incredibly productive and prolific. And so if you're going to grow a cut flower, they are the thing, for me, they're the thing to grow because they just give you so much for so little. And um, I'm just working on a, a design for a, a little tiny garden in London. You've got to come and help me, Arthur. <laughs> and um, I'm just thinking that I'm going to do my lasagna there, mm. which is with highly scented narcissus planted at six inches and then Dutch iris planted at four inches deep and then dahlias over the top. And so then I'll have a series of different highly scented narcissus looking lovely and providing me with a few vases all through March and April. Then I'll have Dutch iris for May and into June. And then I'll have dahlias from July until November, say, and then just a little hiatus before the narcissus come up again. So in terms of an incredibly handsome, beautiful, colourful garden that also produces flowers, that layering of plants that involves dahlias is hard to beat, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Will you explain to all of us how to bring a dahlia into growth from one of those things that look like a bunch of sausages in the butcher? So um, at the moment, all of my dahlias are downstairs in crates in our cellar because unlike Sarah, all my dahlias are growing in pots. And because I want to do my spring bulb lasagna, unfortunately, I can't properly work my pots by leaving them in. So all of my dahlias have to traditionally be lifted, dried and then stored over the winter. So at the moment, they're all downstairs. They just look like, as Sarah's just said, like salami type creatures dried up starfish but as long as they feel firm and, and nice and dry to the touch they'll be totally fine and at this time of year often you'll see where this where the old stem is in the heart of the tuber you'll see little red like lumps almost like warts and they're what will be the first stems of that dahlia so whether you're buying them fresh or whether you've got them stored and you're planting them up that's a really good indication that they're ready to be potted up and what i do is i'll pot them up all into at least a three litre pot, really. Two litre is a bit small for most varieties. So good three litre pot. I'll fill that up more than halfway with compost because that tuber doesn't need to be more than an inch below the, the compost surface. And that means that the whole pot will then be a very generous space for the daily to root down into. So for me, they go on the kitchen windowsill or ideally in a spare room near the window. 
And as long as the compost is wet, you don't need to water the dahlias until they start sprouting. The biggest failure that people tell me about is overwatering dahlias when they're being started off. You've got to see the tuber as like um, a hard potato that you don't want to become a mashed potato. Until they start growing properly, they really don't need lots of water. So they're my top tips uh, for starting them off. Brilliant. And just to finish, I think it would be good if we both told everyone which was our number one top variety. Oh, Desert Island Dahlia. Yeah. Well, maybe you could have three. I think let's have three. Make it nice. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would go to a desert island with Bishop of Auckland because it's the most mm-hmm. lovely, voluptuous colour and also the foliage is very lovely and dark. So that would be number one. Mm-hmm. Number two would probably be Blue Bayou because it's a beautiful mm-hmm. lilac and the butterflies love that more than anything else. It's also quite nice and tall. And... The final one for me would probably be Totally Tangerine because it flowers so early. It's oh, normally... I wanted that oh, I'm one. I'm sorry. You can have all your, <laughs> your picking ones. I've selected all those are brilliant for bees and butterflies. So Sarah's now going to... You can have Totally Tangerine on your island as well. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm having four. All right. So I'm four. having Totally Tangerine. <laughs> um, and Totally Tangerine because it's brilliant for containers and it's brilliant for pollinators and it's beautiful. It's sort of soft terracotta colour. I absolutely love it. Um, I would definitely have to have one of the crazy showy ones for the vase. And I think I would probably go for the first dahlia I ever fell in love with, which was Rip City. And Mm. I saw it in Monet's garden, honestly, now nearly 30 years ago, I'd say. And it was before dahlias were fashionable. And I remember I fell on it and I bought three plants from the nursery there and I bought them back. And this was in September time. And then I always forgot about them, but then up they came. I just put them in a cold frame here, up they came. And I planted them with chocolate cosmos and the calendula called Indian Prince. And I was just completely blown away by them. And of course, the Indian Prince and the chocolate cosmos were lovely, but they went over. And that dahlia honestly just went on flowering from the beginning of July until well into December. And I was just completely blown away by it. So it remains kind of quite dear to my heart, good old Rip City. And it's got a purple brother now, which I think is called Ripples, which is which is also lovely. I would have to go for the, I know everybody loves to hate it now because it's become so popular, but I do think Café Olay is a pretty amazing one. It's got um, uh, ivory colored flowers that range from being slightly coffee, milky coffee colored to pure white to ivory. And I, I do just love a, v- a big vase of that on the kitchen table. But then the the final one for me would have to be uh, one of the singles and one of the ones that we've bred. And I think my number one top hit would either be Lou Farman or Sarah Raven. And I love both of them. Oh, no. Skipper's I've Bronze. remembered another now. Well, uh, on Skipper's the cover of your new book. No, but I remembered Molly Raven. Oh, yes, Molly. Molly Raven. <laughs> yes, Skipper's Bronze is on the front cover of my book. And um, I absolutely adore it. And then there's one called Molly Raven, yeah, Molly. which is named after my youngest daughter. And it's the most beautiful thing that looks like Venetian paper, mm. you know, that beautiful marbled paper. And it's a lovely mix of sort of soft kind of slightly apricot base with a deep crimsony, plummy overlay. It's absolutely stunning. So hopefully we've convinced you all to grow at least some rhubarb. Here we grow Timperley Early for early uh, we grow Stockbridge Arrow for, for April and we grow Victoria 
um, for uh, May. And so we have a nice succession and certainly a few dahlias. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. Next week, we are going to talk about something that Arthur and I are really passionate about, which is growing annuals to feed the birds and really drawing as many different wild birds into the garden and keeping them here with nesting boxes. And we're also going to talk about courgettes. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.